Fergus Finley, welcome to the Joe Dalton Show. How are you? I'm good, Joe. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. Enjoying life. Enjoying life. But Fergus, before we go, I know a lot of people know who you are, but the people that don't, tell them who you are. Um, I'm a Rattledale pensioner, um, 70 years of age. Uh, I've uh, been busy and active for most of that 70 years. Um, started my life um, after very, very poor degree in UCC um, as a trade union official. Um, crossed the table after a long number of years and <clears throat> became for a while a personnel manager. Went from personnel management into politics um, for a year. I was only going to stay for a year. And about 17, 18 years later, I left that. Uh, went briefly into public affairs. Um, then back into politics for a short spell. Uh, and then I was asked to become and became chief executive of Bernardo's, the children's charity in Ireland. Um, and I did that for just over 15 years um, and very, very proud of that. Um, now I am retired. Um, when, um, when I retired, when I did retire from Bernardo's, I was offered about 75 different jobs. Um, none of them had a salary attached to it. Um, uh, so I, I now do a lot of stuff. I, I, I do get board fees. I'm a board member of the HSE. Um, I'm a board member of the Charities Regulatory Authority and I'm involved in the Audit and Risk Committee in both those bodies. They're both quite busy, the HSE spectacularly busy. I'm chair of the Dolphin House Regeneration Board, which is trying to complete, against all odds, a regeneration and a disadvantaged, a brilliant but disadvantaged community on South Circular Road. Um, uh, I'm chair of a thing which has been kind of frozen now because of the pandemic. Um, called the Comprehensive Employment Strategy Implementation Group, which is a sort of a public service task force with, uh, with a lot of um, stakeholders involved, uh, which is des designed to try and implement, a, a, excuse me, a decent employment strategy for people with intellectual disabilities and disabilities generally. Um, and, I, and a couple of other things. The thing that I'm perhaps proudest of at the moment is that I'm chair of Lakers in Bray, which is a started as a club, a family club, and is now a club stroke service provider for people uh, with intellectual disabilities, adults and um, young people with intellectual disabilities. It aims to try and facilitate their growth and development through fun, friendship, sport, cultural activities, and a wide range of stuff that we do. It was very, very badly hit, uh, as you can imagine, by the onset of the coronavirus. Um, but the thing I'm really proud of is that the very, very small team we have, the day after the coronavirus lockdown started, the day after it started, they put up their first Zoom class. And ever since then, we've, we've, um, we've offered a full range of classes in art, physical wellness, well-being, fitness, um, music, song, dance, uh, cookery, um, to our members, and they can do it. They can do it all on Zoom. We're now working at trying to come back, uh, trying to reopen, but it'll be slow and painful and gradual. Uh, you, but we'll be starting that soon. 
you haven't you know listening back on that you know there's a lot of people that would say oh my god he's very involved in everything how does he find the time um a lot of wisdom and knowledge is probably up in that mind of brain rattling around yours with all the experience over the years i wish i wish you wish indeed but tell me what motivates you um uh, i i joe I've, I've kind of answered this question before i'm 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 people who know me well um will tell you that i'm bone idle um and that i prefer nothing more than to sit in my armchair with a glass of red wine looking at the telly. Um, nowadays, my missus and I um, spend most of our time when we're looking at the telly, looking at CNN. We've both become obsessed with the lunatic uh, in the United States um, uh, and, and completely, and we will be for the next seven or eight weeks uh, watching nothing else except the developments there. Um, so so I'm, I'm, I'm a kind of bone idle activist, and uh, that's a kind of a contradiction in terms. The, the, I suppose there are things that motivate me. Um, when I was very young, I read a book, uh, and it's not often you're motivated by a book, but I was motivated by this book. I read a book about a man called Jim Larkin, who was the founder of the Transport and General Workers Union in Ireland, now called SIP2, um, and, and a breakaway union from that called the Workers Union of Ireland, where I worked. Um, Jim Larkin was uh, a, a young Liverpudlian who came to Ireland and led the lockout in 1913 um, and was a fighter and a difficult person all his life. He was an obstreperous kind of a person all his life, not, uh, not an easy man to lead or to manage. <clears throat> and he, he was once put on trial um, uh, for a variety of different things, essentially trumped up stuff. Um, and he conducted his own defence, and, and he, although he conducted it brilliantly, he was convicted anyway. In the course of his speech from the dock, as it were, um, he said that all his life he'd been gripped by a burning desire to close the gap between what ought to be and what is. And I remember reading that sentence when I was probably an idealistic 15 or 16 year old and thinking, my God, what a way to spend your life that is. And it's a sentence, now I'm not saying that I've been gripped by that desire all my life, but it's a sentence that has never left me. That thing about the gap between what ought to be and what is. Um, and I've tried and I've tried and I've tried in various different ways to, to, to kind of do my own thing about that gap. I've failed more often than I've succeeded, um, but I have done some things that, that uh, you know, uh, kind of did help to close the gap. Um, and the other two things that motivate me are the woman I married and the daughter, the first of my four daughters. Now, actually, all my daughters motivate me. They're all brilliant and they're all talented. I have four daughters and now we have um, five grandchildren. Um, and uh, I think it's probably OK to say another on the way. Um, congratulations uh, but but um uh, and uh, and they're they're huge all of them are huge motivators but our eldest daughter mandy was born with down syndrome um and she taught us a lot immediately um as, as you it, said in your tedx talk up syndrome up syndrome and, oh, and i share that and i yeah. share that with many of people it's her expression and her demand and so on. But And the, the reason for that is because, um, and I tried to explain this that night as well, um, Down syndrome and in all forms of 
disability in Ireland, all forms, without exception, are inextricably associated with second-class citizenship. When you are born with a disability or encounter a disability in your life or are diagnosed with a disability, you immediately run into a bureaucratic battle. Uh, and that bureaucratic battle never stops. You're surrounded by good people who want to help in different ways and want to provide service in different ways. But the rules, the regulations, the funding, it's always a nightmare. Um, and the consequence of that is um, that it labels people with disabilities. The other consequence of it is that we waste an awful lot of money. Um, we spend an awful lot of money on disability in Ireland providing lousy services. Uh, and that's uh, stupid. You know, that's stupid and unacceptable. I, um, I, I, I want to touch off that in a minute. But before, I just want to jump back to Jim Larkin. And I think a lot of people don't know about Jim um, Larkin and what he did for us. And from, for myself personally, Jim Larkin was a name that was mentioned in our household. My grandfather pushed two p- policemen all over into the Liffey at one stage and Jim Larkin gave him a letter so he could go to Liverpool to work to save his arrest. And then my father, who was a, uh, a fitter in the IGB, um, the Irish Glass Bottle Company, as you probably remember, in Ring's End, went on strike for many years and was part of the trade union. And it's interesting, even I, at one stage, I was a bus conductor in, in very early life, and it was all the trade unions. And it seemed to be those trade unions sort of phased out as, you know, capitalism came more in. And, you know, I went through a stage in life where I thought unions were rubbish um, and they were just, you know, anything they wanted, you know, for an easy life. But over the last maybe year or two years, I'm starting to see now the benefits that they have held if they were run correctly and, and not in it for, for a what's in it for me process? Well, um, I I think the question what's in it for me is a very interesting question, though. I I mean, I became a trade union official in 1971, and and over over a number of years, um, I represented a very large number of people in the health service. Um, And these people, um, they did, you know, nowadays, we didn't have those terms then, but nowadays we call them you know, frontline and um, first responders and, and all of that. And we value them and we cherish them and we stand outside our houses on Thursday nights and we applaud them. Um, uh, the ward orderlies, the nurses, the nurses' assistants, um, the catering staff, the laundry staff, that's what I represented back in those days. Um, and their generic title in the health system, their generic title was servant there were two categories of people employed in the health system in those days, generically, officers and servants. And they had different holiday entitlements, different pay, of course, different pension arrangements, uh, different supervision arrangements, um, uh, and, and, and all of that. And servants were the bottom of the heap, and some servants were even more at the bottom of the heap. And they were discriminated against. They were badly treated. They were paid buttons, but yeah. but but also, you know, um, for, if an officer in, back in those days, and we we changed all that in 1972-73, but in in those days, if an officer was asked to work on a Sunday, he or she got double pay, 
because servants was asked to work on a Sunday, he or she got fired if they dis- if they refused, um, and we changed all that. Um, and and uh, I can remember, I can remember um, a, a woman called Eileen Keegan in Cherry Orchard Hospital, um, uh, who was the full time breadwinner for her family and who was a cleaner in the hospital and an absolutely brilliant woman. I can remember her saying, "What's in it for me if I have to work on a Sunday?" Um, and, and me saying, well, what's in it for you should be exactly the same as what's in it for everybody else. If they get double pay, you should get double pay. Uh, and we got it in the end, um, not, not easily. I do agree, Joe, that there was a sense in which trade unionism lost its way um, and became, um, I guess, a bit sort of knee-jerk in, in some ways um, uh, and, a, and also a bit remote um, uh, from, from its membership. Um, I, 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 um, and I'm puzzled now when I look back. When, when, when I left the union I was working for at the time, I covered an area of 11 counties in the south of Ireland. Um, and I had 3,000 members. And I also had a couple of national grades to represent at the time. And I did every year um, 50,000 miles in a battered old Fiat car. Um, and uh, long days, long nights, long, a lot of time away from home and, and, and all that. That same region is now represented by five full-time officials. Um, there are probably more members than there were, but um, uh, nothing like the travel, nothing like the hours and, and, and all that. It has become very, very professionalised. And that's a good thing in many ways. It's a really important thing in many ways. But in other ways, you wonder whether it's a sustainable thing that slight level of professional remoteness from ordinary working people um it's a disconnect yeah the you know it's true true life we 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 look back and we we learn through our wisdom and as i was saying you've you've years and years of wisdom what happened in the 70s and the 80s and we know that in you know in the 80s you know ireland we all everybody went to england do you think that people now are just more acceptance now today and don't question as much as the, we did in the 70s and 80s? Oh, no, I don't, uh, Joe. I, I, um, I don't think we question nearly enough in the 70s and 80s. Not nearly enough. Um, I think we were far more accepting then in some ways. I mean, you know, there was trade union strife and there was, uh, you know, um, a lot of industrial relations difficulties and, and so on. But little girls were dying beside grottos because they were afraid and ashamed to tell their parents they yeah. were pregnant in yeah. the in the, well into the 80s. I was um, very active in politics. In fact, I was assistant government press secretary to my shame when I first heard about Anne Lovett dying in, in a grotto in Granard. I was assistant government press secretary when Joanne Hayes was produced by a tribunal in Kerry. Um, nothing... Some things changed very quickly. People demanded their rights a bit more in the area of work and so on. You know, the Irish state fought tooth and nail against equal pay for six or seven years when it was being implemented across the rest of Europe. We looked for and got a derogation because we believed that if we gave women equal pay, it would be the end of civilization as we knew it. We fought tooth and nail against it. Then we discovered... That we needed women in the workplace. And in the 90s, 
we changed the tax law to disincentivize women from staying at home and drive them into the workplace. Um, and then we found that we had all these women in the workplace and we had no childcare system. So we invented the Mickey Hack childcare system overnight um, to meet the needs of working families, but not necessarily to meet the needs of children. So I suppose my sort of general perspective on, and the question you asked is, we always wait too long to change. We always fight against change. We always terrify ourselves about change. And then we discover that the roof hasn't actually fallen in. It hasn't actually, um, you know, become the end of the world. We couldn't survive as an economy without working women in Ireland. But we thought for years and years um, that, uh, you know, we, we, every time... We also thought for years and years that we didn't need to import, you know, and we could live on macaroon bars and everything that was produced in the country. You know, it's yeah, only, yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's, yeah. it's only when we realized our government realized, you know, we, we cannot be self-sufficient and we need I mean, export. I, I was involved in a campaign about, you know, the rights of children in the constitution and the principal argument against it that was put forward was that you would strip parents of their rights if you gave children rights. That was the principal argument that was put forward. And it was a nightmare that was going to unfold. I was involved in the 80s and again in the 90s in a campaign for the introduction of divorce in Ireland. And the principal argument that was put forward was that the floodgates would open, that every marriage would end up in divorce. Now, yes, we have some divorce in Ireland now. The lowest rate of divorce in certainly the English-speaking world, if not the, the, the whole world, certainly the whole lowest rate of divorce in, in the OECD. Do you remember only a year or two ago the arguments that were made um, about the depredation and degradation and corruption that would occur in Ireland if we allowed people of the same sex to marry? Um, and somehow or other, it hasn't happened. We're still a reasonably decent place. Um, I mean, Ireland, I think in all sorts of ways, since, my, since I was a kid, Ireland has changed in all sorts of ways for the better. Every single one of those changes was resisted and every single one of them was resisted on the basis of fear. And, uh, and, and all winning campaigns, um, it's one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by Donald Trump. You can see the campaign of fear that he is trying to generate now. And if he wins, it'll be a victory for fear, a victory for fear and ignorance. And, uh, and he could win, there's no doubt about that. And if he does, it'll be just another, but uh, the number of times I've tried to make change in Ireland in my own little way as, and always as part of a much bigger thing, as a small part of a much bigger thing. When I've been beaten, I've been beaten by fear. Been beaten but, by but that's it. It's, it, it. You know, we, I call it all fear feeders. You know, it, it's an, everything is always sold to everybody with fear. It's look at, and the Irish are, are, are always, the, I've always known as the governments, how do they really hit the Irish people? And they hit the Irish people in the pocket. So if they want the Irish people to comply with something, it's like with masks, saying to people, if you don't wear a mask on a bus or you know in a super shop, you can be, it was someone's you know it was fine. You could be fined a thousand euros. That's putting fear into people, and that's how the I find that the fear is always used by the, with the Irish to hit them hard with the money. Because <coughs> and, and let because if you look at the statistics of people are getting. Poverty is kicking in 
more and more as each decade goes again, okay, we're richer than we ever were before. There's, you know, there's, there's so much wealth. But if you look at the households as we go on, people here today are probably more in debt than their parents were ever were. Um, probably, probably more in debt. I, that's a very long question, Joe, and, and a lot of ramifications. Let's go back to the mass for just a minute. I, I, um, I listened to your interview with that um, lady who's uh, chairman of the Irish Freedom Party. I've forgotten her name, Professor Delory, something or other, uh, recently. And um, uh, a lot of crazy stuff about all that. An awful lot of crazy stuff, including, if you don't mind, um, a statistic you quoted at the at the very beginning of that interview, which was absolutely completely wrong. Um, uh, but the mass thing, I, I find the mass thing weird. I find it absolutely weird. I find it weird that I mean, I have been fined. I've been fined for um, use being caught using my mobile phone. I've been fined for speeding. I've been fined for going the wrong way up a one way street. I've done those things absentmindedly. Uh, over the years and I've, I've you know I got the penalty points to prove it and it took me a long time to get rid of the penalty points and so on I didn't feel that anyone was trying to make me afraid I felt that people were trying to make me respect the law and uh, and that I was I was the Egypt in the matter and um, I cannot understand I just cannot understand why anyone would object to wearing a mask I just can't in a tight in a confined public space um I actually walked into our local shop 10, 20 minutes ago with my mask in my pocket and I absentmindedly forgot to put it on. And I was, I saw two other people standing there with their masks on. I was mortified at the fact that I had gone into the place uh, with, without a mask and I whipped it out and put it on uh, immediately. And if I didn't have it, I'd have run out. And wearing a mask is just a sign that you are willing to look out for the other person. But that's, the thing we need most in the middle of this pandemic is a willingness to look out for each other. If we look out for each other, lockdowns will never be necessary again. If we take care of each other, and there are simple, boring, repetitive ways to take care of each other, and wearing a mask is one of them. Uh, not shouting into somebody's face is another, etc. Um, uh, and, and yet there are people out there campaigning against this and, and, and trying to tell us that this is about the government, it's like, a, it's like a government conspiracy. It's absolute rubbish. Um, and, and, you know, the, the idea that we would object to something like this, if, if, I mean, I would, I would actually go further. You know, we're going to have a, a flu vaccine available in the next week or so. Um, we're going to have a flu season coming up. I would make flu vaccination mandatory. And I would absolutely... Um, refuse to allow people to get away without having their flu vaccine. Um, but that's, is that not freedom then? That's, you know, the freedom of, you're taking away then the freedom of choice from people. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not an I'm not, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. You know, I believe in you either can have the choice of getting something or not. But, you know. Would it be okay, Joe, if you exercise the choice to get the flu? And somebody else exercised the choice not to let you into hospital when you're at in when you're in a very bad way. Some other doctor, some doctor said, "Oh, you chose not to get a vaccine. Well, go home now and look after yourself, because my choice is not to let you into my my hospital." 
The biggest problem we have in Ireland in terms of our health system, the biggest problem we have is that we are the least well-equipped. And we were at the start of this outbreak, the least well-equipped. And the reason is because we haven't invested in beds over many years. Um, from the late 80s on, we stripped beds out of the hospital system. And the consequence of that is, and you can look at this in OECD tables or anywhere you like, the consequence of that is that we have the highest bed occupancy of any hospital system in the OECD, higher by far than anybody else. And that's why every winter, the main reason why every winter, we have hundreds of people in corridors. And the idea that people would um, choose not to get a vaccine that is safe and, that's prevent, and that prevents the flu, but be perfectly happy to complain about having to lie in a corridor in a hospital, just strikes me as wrong, completely wrong. If you want to exercise your freedom of choice and not get a vaccine, I have total and absolute respect for that. Just don't clog up my hospital when you get sick. That's my view. Yeah, yeah. Look, and, and that's the thing. I think it's a. It, uh, there's one thing that that scares me about the world that everybody is agreeing with everybody, and you know, there's a lot of copy and pasting going on out there. And it's nice to see someone who speaks their mind. And you always have spoken your mind. And for me, you know, so be it if that is your, yours and we will disagree on that, which is I freedom of choice. And yes, for me personally, myself, I haven't been sick in years and I haven't got a flu or a cold in years because I eat healthy and nutrition. And if someone then said to me, says, oh, I want you to have this mandatory vaccine, I'd say no. Because That's fine. That's fine, yeah, Joe. That's yeah, fine. Yeah. And, and I wish you the best. And I hope you don't get the flu this winter. Um, and I hope you don't object if you're kept out of hospital when you do. I, I wouldn't. That's freedom yeah. of choice. Yeah, and it, it, is, it is freedom of choice. Like, we, we do these things to look after each other as well as to look after ourselves. Um, and, 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 you know, we all have freedom of choice about all sorts of ways, but we also have responsibilities. I have an absolute responsibility to my family to try and stay as well as I can. Absolute. Yeah. How am I doing them any favour if I, uh, you know, pick up the coronavirus or, uh, and die? How am I doing them a favour if I do that? Um, that's my obligation to my family is to try and protect them and me. Uh, in those kind of situations. Talking about protection and the coronavirus and children, are children the unforgotten voice in this? You know, we know, you know, speaking to, you know, listen to on the, on the radio and other stations and everything as well, that, you know, there's, is there an element of abuse that's going on behind closed doors that, because there was a lockdown as well? I think there have been problems um, uh, that, that are undeniable. I think, uh, I think there have been, there's probably been, uh, particularly as a result of the early lockdown, um, which was completely and absolutely unavoidable, completely and absolutely. If, if we hadn't had that early lockdown, our health system would have collapsed in a heap. Mm -hmm. As it happens, it came through it really well, uh, and and also the people really stepped up to the plate and did brilliant stuff. 
Um, but if, if we hadn't had an early lockdown, um, it, it, the health system would have collapsed. So it was unavoidable. But I don't think you can deny that there has been very significant increases in some areas, and I, I work in some of them, of family stress, um, some issues of domestic violence, uh, some increase in, um, in violence towards each other and towards children. And yes, children are never heard in these situations. Children are always the sort of invisible victim uh, in these kind of situations. It'll take us a while to figure out exactly what the incidence of all of this has been. Um, I've also heard of and come across um, families that have had brilliant lockdowns, that have you know rediscovered relationships and rediscovered fun and activities and so on. But that's fine. If you live in the country and you have a big house and three pets and a lovely garden and, and all, all that, if you, if you live in the country, it's fine. If you live in a very small flat in a disadvantaged community um, that, that has other problems and that always had other problems before it, um, uh, then, then it, it ain't fine. And, and that, that's, if you live in direct provision, um, if you live in a congregated setting, it's not fine. It's just not fine at all. Um, and 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 we're discovering all that, and we're discovering the kind of issues and policy changes and so on that that need to happen as a consequence of all that. Um, and in the middle of all that, yes, I I when I worked in Bernardo's, I learned an awful lot. I learned every day that I worked in Bernardo's. I learned. I used to say to people, if you want to know about kids, there were four hundred of us working in Bernardo's, and if you want to know about kids. Ask the other 399 because they're the real experts. I wasn't the expert. I, it was my job to kind of tell their story, if you like. But, mm. but, um, uh, but they were the real experts. And, and I, one of the things I learned is that in the best of all worlds, um, growing up involves climbing a mountain. Um, it certainly involves making a climb. Growing from little to large uh, involves climbing over barriers and hurdles and, and, uh, and, and all of that. And if you are born into poverty, you may have been, I was, um, certainly not into riches, um, then, then that climb is a little bit harder. You know, it's a little bit steeper. If you're born into poverty in a, a dysfunctional family setting, a setting where there's drink or drugs or other forms of poverty or other stresses or violence or whatever, then that climb becomes like climbing Kilimanjaro. And if you're born into poverty in a dysfunctional family in a disadvantaged community where yeah. all of this is endemic, then that climb becomes Everest. Um, now, kids can climb Everest in the metaphorical sense, but not on their own. Um, they need help and they need support. Um, and and nobody, nobody can climb Everest without the help of a Sherpa. Um, I always used to regard us in Bernardo's as the kind of Sherpas that would get involved in helping kids to climb. And sometimes the steeper the climb, the more help they need. But kids are just kids. Um, and I, I feel the same about disability, by the way. I, like disability is often defined in a whole lot of ways that make no sense to me at all. Um, Disability is barriers. Um, if, if you have a disability, it is. And Joe, you might have a disability. And the disability might be that somebody doesn't like you um, and that somebody has put obstacles in your way. If you have a disability, then you spend your whole life, your whole life, overcoming barriers that other people have laid down. They right, might be well, I have a disability, which is dyslexia. 
Yes. And I can understand that and what those disability, disability, disabilities are. Yeah. You've dealt with attitudes about it. But it's it. always something in the, in the back of your mind all the time. If I have dyslexia, I must be stupid. You know, that's, that's what somebody told you years and years ago. And I've, 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 some of my best friends, as they say, have dyslexia. By the way, Joe, have you ever seen or read, there's a famous Somerset Mom short story um, which, which, uh, about a man who couldn't read or write. He was the, the sexton in his local church uh, and, he, and he had no ability to read or write. But what he did have was a sense of hospitality and warmth and decency. And his church was the best looked after for miles around. It was absolutely fantastic and gorgeous. Um, and everyone in the community valued him until a new vicar arrived, a new young vicar with a very up, get up and go sort of attitude. And he was horrified to discover that his sexton couldn't read or write. And he said, I'm very sorry, but I need a man who can keep the accounts and all that. And there has to be a parting of the ways. And he effectively fired the man. And on his long, lonely trudge home, um, the sexton felt in his pocket for his pipe and his tobacco and realised that he had no tobacco. And he looked up and down the long street that he was walking on and he realised there was no tobacco shop anywhere. And he went home that night and he dug out all his savings, his life savings, and he bought a little tiny shop on the high street to turn it into a tobacconist, a pipe smoker's heaven. Um, and he was so good at that, at making the place warm and welcoming, that people started coming from miles around to get their smoking requisites from him. And they were made welcome. And they were. It was so successful that soon he opened a second and then a third. Um, and right across the town, big town, he had little shops. And he came to the attention of a multi-million euro pound conglomerate who thought this man is making a huge success of this. And they made him an offer to buy him out. More money than he had ever dreamt of and enough money for him to retire comfortably. And he accepted the offer and he went in to sign the contract. And that's when they discovered that he wasn't able to sign his name to the contract. And the multi-million dollar man looked at him and said, in amazement, my God, man, where would you be if you could read and write? And of course, the answer was, I'd still be the sexton in the local church. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, the, that's why I've always believed that, you know, we might all have to cope with an impairment of one kind yeah, or another. Yeah, we all have our own qualities, no matter what. My brother, God rest his soul, was schizophrenic. Yes. You know, and it, it, there was a label... <laughs> That he had, and a label we, that people joke about and sneer at, and yeah, don't understand. We, we, we get labels. Everyone is labelled, you know, an accountant, and, and us, a lawyer. I, I'm now, I'm now a kind of um, daily assembly operation. Um, I when I wake up in the morning, I scrabble up to my bedside um, for my glasses. I can't function without my glasses. Um, I go up to the bathroom and I take out my dentures and I clean them and I put them back in. Um, I go when I as soon as I'm dressed, I get my hearing aids and I shove them in as well, and then I'm kind of assembled for the day. I'm ready to face the day, um, uh, and so on. And these are these are the things that go hand in hand with age. I won't talk about the uh, amount of time I have to spend doing my hair, but um, yeah, uh, these are the kind of things that they just come hand in hand with age. But what amazes me is 
the way other people will sneer and mock, uh, the way other people will form judgments about you based on uh, a, a disability. If you, you go to any interview you like and say, I have dyslexia, um, and two thirds of them will immediately erect a little wall between you and them that you have to persuade them to knock down. Um, some will get it, some will not. Some will associate you with being ever so slightly thick. If, you're dis if you have dyslexia, you must be thick. Um, whereas in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. There is no correlation at all between intelligence and dyslexia, none. Um, uh, and, you know, Winston Churchill had dyslexia. All sorts of people had dyslexia. Uh, who who were I I I feel or evil in other it's ways. only just it's because we see the world in a different way. That's that's yeah, that's what yeah. it is. And yeah, but when you see the world in a different way, and as a consequence of that, people see you in a different way. That's where the problem is. That's what disability means. It's other people creating barriers. Yeah, and it, with disabilities and with far greater disabilities that are out there as well we are all equal you know I've, I've come to terms that we are all equal and we should treat everyone as an individual in this world and stop putting those labels on people but it have we been conditioned for those years it's like what you said in the beginning of the interview you know there was women you know, who were frightened to, to tell their situation at, you know, at a very early young age. So yeah, yeah. maybe we're growing up and accepting again, you know, same sex marriages, everything. It's wonderful to see this, that if we treat everyone just as, as equal. It's why I often describe disability as the last great civil rights campaign, because we have, when we, when we approach anything in civil rights and human rights terms, we recognise that there's an issue to be fixed, and it, and and also that it's fixable. Um, we we we've never, I mean, in my lifetime, I mean, you, I, I talked about Mandy at that in that TEDx talk. Just think of the labels. Just think of the labels that have been applied um, to my daughter when she was born. She was described as mongoloid. Throughout most of her young life the word retarded was the label that was applied, mentally retarded. That, was, that began to morph and change into a phrase called mental handicap, and she was seen as having a mental handicap. The handicap was hers, not anybody else's. Um, and that has now changed into disabled. I hate beyond words when I see newspaper headlines that refer to the disabled. Um, if you saw a headline that referred to the dyslexic, um, it's a headline about people who have, citizens who have dyslexia. Headlines like the disabled, and you see it all the time. Um, even I've, I've made speeches about the rights of people with disability, um, and it's been, the speeches have been reported under a headline like Finlay advocates for the disabled. I don't bloody well advocate for the disabled. Yeah. Um, I... I I think people need to be treated as people. Um, and when you get over that, when you get that sense that, you know, people are people, um, that's your first step towards a greater sense of equality. I believed all my adult life in equality. Um, 
remember being involved, and it was in, during my political days, I remember being involved in an endless battle around something or other. And I woke up in the middle of the night one time, and I thought, this is futile. I woke up thinking, God almighty, I've been campaigning for something that is futile. Equality will never happen. Less inequality is possible every day. Uh, breaking down the barriers to equality is possible every day. But we're always going to be, as long as we're always going to be different, we're never really going to have a sense of ourselves as always being the same. And, and, and I, I, um, I don't like the idea that we should all be the same. I like the idea that nobody should be the victim of inequality. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I remember I, I wrote extensively about it at the time. Um, uh, Michael McDowell, when he was leader of the PD, used to uh, espouse the theory that inequality was necessary. A dollop of inequality was good for us. Um, and I hated that with a passion. I absolutely hated it. I don't, I don't argue now that equality is possible. I do argue that we should always reject inequality and that we should fight to break down the things that cause inequality. Most of which, by the way, are not real anyway. You know, like, why do we hate black people? Um, is it because there's something that we should believe about them? Or is it because we're ignorant and stupid ourselves? Um, I, I, you know, I just, I just don't get why. I, I, I can never I think understood that forms the forms too about the, the the racist element is. Yeah, I've never understood the basis of racism. education. You know, yeah. it's it's the elimination of fear. If you eliminate yeah. fear, you'd eliminate racism. I yeah. think. Yeah, and it's it's like, uh, you know, I sitting in a barber's getting my hair cut there uh, 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 when we could get our hair cuts in barbers. Um, and I haven't been in a barber's for 45 years. For years, and the girl at the time that was cutting my hair was was saying, it's terrible, you know, all these foreigners coming in and taking our jobs. And I actually stopped her, and I said, you have no right to say that. I says, the Irish, there's, you know, there's 70 million Irish around the world. In the 1980s, all the Irish went over to England and Germany to work, and they were the foreigners. So you have no right to accuse or say that someone else is coming into your country. Yeah. When we as an Irish left here and traveled the world, and you're gonna look at me and says, don't ever say that again. People forget. What sparked that with me was, when you said the PDs, a blip, that no one knows anymore. I suppose. I suppose you have to be my age to remember the PDs. Already. Yeah, but, I, you know, people I, uh, say, you know, what yeah. happened to the PDs, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I, actually, you know, in, in a way it was kind of worse because in the 50s and 60s and even the 30s and so on, we sent thousands, we sent them, and didn't I'll give them a choice, we sent thousands and thousands of people abroad. The difference in then and now is we sent them abroad without an education, without the remotest possibility of making their way in the world. Um, at least in the 80s and 90s, if people emigrated more of them by choice than by coercion, although an awful lot of coercion, by and large, they went with an education. There was that families was in, in local Dunleary area that, you know, family members and there was friends of families that were put on boats by their parents to go to yeah. England because there was no work here. Yeah. 
Yeah, they were, they were, yeah, they were. No doubt about that. Oh, yeah, and part of our shame. I want to just one of the things that that I worry about. If I if I, I don't worry about anything, but there's one thing that I'm concerned about, and that is our children. You know, and you know, it's save our children and there's something are the government doing enough you know we know that there's probably 1.5 billion put aside to help kids and you know we've we have is it gorma now who is 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 in charge are we are we still doing enough or can we we can always do more but are we doing the right things well how can we make people aware well every time we answer this question honestly um I answer this question honestly, Joe, I get into terrible trouble. Um, so I'm tempted not to answer it honestly, but I will try. Um, I, we're doing an awful lot. And it's, a lot of it is terribly misplaced and misguided and wrong. Um, I mentioned earlier that, you know, we arrived at a point where we suddenly realised we needed women back in the workforce and we changed the tax system and we, we, we disincentivised staying at home and all that. And then we decided that we had to have a childcare system, so we created a childcare system. This is just one example, okay? We created a childcare system. And we now run, uniquely in the whole world, a system of childcare and early education in which the Department of Education has no role, okay? And system of early education, which is not run by the Department of Education. It is run instead by somewhere between four and 5,000 private and community providers, many of whom have to operate at a profit on the basis of grants given by the Department of Children. Now, that's no way to run a system. There, there is a curricular framework called um, ASHTER, and there is a, a quality standard framework called SHILTA. The last time I was involved, and it was some years ago, so I, my figures may not be up to date. Of the 5,000 private providers in Ireland, 200 had qualified to call themselves shield their providers. So 200 had qualified to operate that standard okay. framework. So that's not a good system, okay? Um, it's unique in the world. Every, you know, in Scandinavia, in the UK, in France, most childcare and early education is operated through the local authorities. Most of it is operated through the local authorities. It's operated according to standards, uh, a curriculum, etc. Now, we are developing a curriculum in Ireland that will integrate. You see, what happens to a kid, to a, a little, they're, they're in preschool and they're playing and so on, and they, all their learning is done through play. This is just one example of okay? All their learning is done through play. Um, and the best systems of preschool learning, the Montessori system, the high school, high school approach, all the, all the Frebel approach, all the best ones, take their lead from the kids. Kids decide what they want to do for the day. They do it. They review it. They plan what they want to do tomorrow. They're all self-directed type of learning with careful supervision and support and, and so on as the day goes on. And it's very play-based and very activity-based and so on. Then a bell rings and it's finished, done. If it was good, it was great. If it wasn't good, sorry about that. And off they go to primary school. And they walk into primary school and there's a row of desks into which they must sit and stay for the rest of the day. 
Nobody has prepared them for that. That's not how they have been learning up to now. And suddenly they're learning in front of a teacher who's standing there. And now they're, we're, you know, we're coming out of lockdown. That, it's probably even more rigid than that now. So we've been working, Ireland has been working for about 10 years now on trying to meld those two things together, develop a popular curric a proper curriculum at childcare level. And now all of that, in doing all of that, we spend probably the primary, the first couple of years of primary school, preschool, early, we've spent probably, probably about 3,000 million on our 1 million kids, okay? Um, and it'd be less than a million if you're only talking about kids up to the age of seven. Um, maybe maybe 400,000 kids. So we spend about 3,000 million on our 400,000 kids. On top of that, we give their mammies a further two and a half billion every year in children's allowance. Um, and then we charge the mammies for every visit to the doctor, we charge their mammies for every visit to the dentist, we charge their mammies for every visit to the chemist shop, we charge their mammies every time the kids have to go back to school and need a new uniform, we charge their mammies every time they need books, etc., etc. If If those same mammies lived on the other side of the border on this island, yeah. they, let's say in Newry, they'd get small, less children's allowance. But all of the things I've just mentioned would be free. Everything yeah. of that sort would be free. So if I was starting again, if I was dictator of Ireland and I wanted to start again, I'd scrap all that and I would start again. I would, I would pay, I would certainly have a universal children's allowance, but it would be smaller than it is now. I would have more for mothers who really, really struggle with uh, economic disadvantage and less for mothers who don't. Um, I, and that's hard to manage and hard to police and hard to organize and all of that. It would, it would take a fair bit of doing at the start. And I would spend all the money I would save on better services. I'd make school books free. I'd make learning free. I'd make healthcare free. I'd make dental care free. I'd make chemist shops free for kids. I'd want to ensure that every child wasn't just well nourished. The only thing I agreed with that lady you had on recently was about vitamins and vitamin supplements and so on. I'd want to make sure that every child had a, a, an appropriate way of accessing the vitamin C and vitamin D they need. I've had taken vitamin C and vitamin D all my life, and I actually think it has helped me to surmount an otherwise terrible lifestyle um, uh, where I've made all sorts of bad choices around drinking and smoking and everything else. Um, uh, but but that's a, that's a side but, issue. But, and yes, it is about costs. Like, and I I do like the idea. It's about, it's about saying, how you spend money better, Joe. Yeah. It's really about and it's you know we're we're a rich country. We don't need to cut back too much. Maybe little bit get rid of little bits and pieces of waste. We could do that, especially on the administrative side of things. Um, but we don't. But we do need to spend the money an awful lot better. We spend enough money. Forgive me for getting back on the hobby horse a second. On disability services in Ireland to provide our population with a disability, excuse me, with a Rolls-Royce service. And nobody could describe it as a Rolls-Royce service. And in fact, nobody needs a Rolls-Royce service. A nice Volvo would do. Um, but, you know, instead of a clapped out old Morris Minor that is 40 years old. Just one of the things as well, which I think a lot of people aren't aware of, and I, I do, look, I do agree with you about cutting children's allowance and offering more free. And if that worked, 
all those extra costs, which the parent would save in the long run, they, they would, and we would have better facilities. I don't know why that would get you in trouble. I agree with you 100% on it. Maybe we can it's, dictate it's, it's, it together. Then explain to me why no politician has ever advocated it in a party political programme. Um, I, I, I mean, I have publicly advocated um, starting That's again. That's a good question. And they That's go, a good question. Why? People go bananas. People go bananas, if you say. And, and you know, there's, and there's all sorts of arguments, all of which are valid in their way, you know, about, about um, children's allowance being um, an income that women get in their own right and that mothers get in their own right and that there are many mothers in Ireland um, who... But you're not taking who, it away really, from them. You it's, not being, it's, not, it's not the argument of we're going to take this away from you. We're going to reduce it. And in reducing it, like school books, you know, school books, school uniforms, the stress that they cause alone to parents in, in, who are in poverty affects the children. Because what happens as well, when a parent is stressed over something else, they, it's, it can be the kids that can get the brunt of it. Oh, and, 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 and stress is what, I mean, as long as I live, Joe, I will never forget standing outside a shop in Dublin, actually standing in, just inside the door of a shop. My missus was fitting the three kids, three of our kids that we had at the time with new shoes for the start of the school year. And I was standing there with a credit card because in those days you had credit cards. And I didn't know if it would work. I just was, I stand there with a knot in my stomach waiting for my moment to hand over the credit card and waiting for the machine to crank up and either laugh out loud or... Yeah. And if, it, if, if the shoes did get paid for, I knew there was nothing left after that. And I, I, I mean... Every parent in Ireland, every parent in Ireland has gone through moments like that. Um, and it's, it seems crazy to me that we can't organise ourselves in a way. All those moments happened in late August, early September when kids are going back to school. Mothers would, I, I mean, over the years in Bernardo's, I came across women who'd gone into debt, who'd engaged themselves to money lenders. And, and, Look, know, they're, they're still going. We, we remember down in... in in Rings End in Irish Town, there was the money lenders down there, and they'd have the book, and you know everyone knocking on all the doors, yeah. and that was the way of life. That yeah. it was, and that probably is still the way of life in certain areas as well. No, I'd say it is. I'd say it is. But um, I remember meeting a woman from Limerick years ago who. Her story was very very simple in one way. She woke up on a Monday morning and there was nothing in the house. Uh, nothing to make lunch for the kids or even breakfast for the kids, go to school, nothing in the house because she was she had been deserted. Um, and she knew of a fellow down the road who would lend a few bob and she went down and asked him for 10 euro to get the breakfast. And he said, I don't do 10, Mrs. Um, but I'll tell you what, I'll give you 100 euro. Uh, now, I need 125 back on Friday. And she took the money and on Friday she didn't have 125 and she gave him 15 that was all she had left and he said okay Mrs that's fine I need 140 next Friday three months later three months later she had paid him more than a thousand and she still owed him two and a half thousand yeah 
yeah, and she bought it 100 in the first place. And I, I remember saying to her, look, you know, we can fix this. We can sort you out of the credit union and we can, we'll find a way to get rid of this debt and get you started again. By then she had developed a kind of an emotional dependence on this guy who was fleecing her, bleeding her dry. Um, and she was unable to break the link. But my mother remembered, God rest her soul, just tell a story of a, a, a woman, her husband was a miser in the Irish town and he used to keep the money in the mattress. And, you know, the family at the time were suffering. So she'd take out a little bit all the time, not known to him, and buy stuff. And at the end, she couldn't replace it. So she took the rest of the money and bought a new mattress and threw the old mattress into the Liffey. <laughs> <laughs> and he came home, where's the mattress? He goes, oh, I got a new one. <laughs> That's great. We, but, we, um, in one of the Bernardo shops, you might remember this uh, a few years ago, um, uh, they got in a pair of curtains. And they were really, really heavy. Um, uh, and and they, they were looking at them and they noticed a kind of a bulge at the, the hem at the bottom. And they had a look inside and there was something like 8,000 quid in notes rolled up and stuffed up in, in the bottom. And we went and searched for um, the owner. And it wasn't long before a woman arrived in and said, Oh, what have I done? What have I done? My husband has been hiding that money in the curtain. I never knew. I never knew. And she's given it away to a charity shop. He he must have had a fainting fit. He didn't. He he wasn't violent or anything like that. He must have really fainted when he came home and discovered the curtains were gone. Yeah, that's the story on it. But do you know it's we're coming to the end here, Ferguson. I hope the world will be a better place in the next 70 years or the next 100 years, especially for the children. Um, because I can see what's happening out there at the moment with, with COVID-19 and, you know, the stress that parents, as parents, we can forget that we can allow air stress affect our children. And I, I, my fear at the moment is that, you know, we don't listen to, not like yourself, I don't listen to CNN, I don't listen to Sky News, I don't have any, we don't have any of that in the house because I call it fear feeders, and that can affect our children. Um, I hope what we're doing at the moment, especially with our small kids, you know, the four-year-olds in primary school, and, and that they won't be, have a, a, a worse effect on them emotionally in years to come? Well, I am. Um, and as you said, yeah, things so are, we I, do I, things I, late. Yeah, no, of course we do. Right? As, a, as a nation, as people, we do things late. We, do, we don't do it until it kind of stared us in the face. And then we wonder why we didn't do it before. Um, I mean, like everything we've done, all these big social changes that we made, all that all seemed really revolutionary in Ireland. You look back in there and say, what was that fuss about? What? Um, and, and maybe we got it wrong, maybe we got it right, I don't know. I was a better father than my father was. Uh, and I loved him and he was a great man. I've been very fond of him and great memories of him and so on. But he wasn't a communicative man. He didn't talk to us as... We didn't really have much of a relationship with him until we were adults ourselves. That was his generation. Yeah. Um, I, I had a much better relationship with my kids than, um, than I had with him. Um, although I was, because of the jobs I did and so on, I was probably an absentee father and, and uh, you know, it wasn't always possible to kind of get me when they needed me. They, 
still better than my, my generation. I look at them and they're so much better at being parents, so much better than we were. Um, and I think every generation goes through that kind of level of transition. I, I, I have worked with hundreds, if not thousands, of young people and 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds. There's nothing more frightening, by the way, than sitting on an interview board and appointing to a management position someone who was born in 1995. Um, <laughs> Jesus, well, talk about feeling ancient and depressed. Yeah. But they're brilliant, um, absolutely brilliant. Every, I, every generation that I know of, and, and this, I think, is true um, whether you, irrespective of class or income or, or whatever, every generation of parenting has become better, more committed, more open, more honest uh, than the previous generation. Communication is better. Understanding is better. It's not to say there aren't rows, there aren't stresses, there, isn't, there aren't problems and, and all of that, but in a general sort of way. And every generation that I, that I see is better than the previous generation. I, I, uh, one of the things, and I've done it even since I've retired, one of the things I get to do every year is I put on a great big red suit and a big white silvery beard and I fill in for somebody else um, in the run-up to Christmas. Very important. I do it in... Bernardo's projects and so on. And I get to meet an awful lot of young people that way. Um, and I have, and these are young people who are struggling with other forms of disadvantage in their lives, all sorts of disadvantage in their lives. And, um, and you know, they're not always going to get uh, what they want for Christmas. Um, uh, you know, but you see it in them. You see the capacity and you see the spark and you see the guts that they have. That, that far exceeds. So I have absolute confidence. I mean, I think the world is beset with huge challenges, of which the biggest is the environmental one by far. Once when, when the pandemic is dead and gone, which I hope it will be, we then have to start worrying again about the, the environment um, and global warming and all that. Um, but if, if there is a generation capable of dealing with that, it's the generation we're leaving behind. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, I believe our children will be the ones that will solve the problems yeah. that we yeah. screwed up on. They will. Yeah. They, and they always have been, by the way. Yeah. We solved a lot of problems that our parents screwed up on. Yeah, yeah. And it's, the, the, you know, there's, and the environment, even you're seeing stuff that's happening today or reading about stuff yesterday that shocks you, shocks you that's happening in the environment. And you kind yeah. of go, I thought we've gone beyond that. Yeah, Why are these yeah. decisions being made? That's it, incredible. Yeah. 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 My missus Fergus. said to me. My missus said to me the other night. Oh, I've been a mad supporter of Joe Biden. I hate Donald Trump. I want Joe Biden to win. But now I discovered that he's not going to ban fracking. I've gone right off him. Right off him. And you know, we all need jerk about these things. Yeah. Uh, well, Joe Biden and Trump. I think Trump will walk it. I think Joe Biden is. The campaign. I don't think the campaign has been um, no, too successful. Not. Yeah. yeah, but that's that's another day. That's yeah, yeah. another day. That's another. Fergus, thanks for coming on the, the show. You can have me back on November the eighth, and we'll talk about it. I will talk about it. Fergus. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks very much, Joe. Look after yourself. And that's it, folks. Another breakthrough brands, or should I say, the Joe Dalton show. Thank you for tuning in. Yes, Fergus is an interesting man with lots of wisdom out there, and for yourselves. You take care and we'll talk again next week.